0: Yogi, dancer, activist, leader. Leslie Salmon Jones helps people to connect with their core, to balance mind, body, and spirit.
1: I'd love to just offer a little sage to clear the space, to allow whatever to come through to come through. So what I usually do to start off any kind of conversation or session is to ground through breath.
0: After embarking on a transformational journey through Africa and the Caribbean with her beloved husband, Jeff, a music director and musician, they created Afroflow Yoga. Connect
1: with your breath in this moment, feeling your feet connected to the floor, the earth, feeling the root system spread deep and wide into the center of the earth we come together in this beautiful moment, I also invite us to reflect on our support system, our loved ones, our teachers, our families, our friends, our children, as we breathe and sink down deeper into this moment, perhaps honoring those who've come before. As we know, many have been lost in the last year to covid also giving gratitude for our ancestors for the wisdom of the freedom fighters and the women who've made it possible for our liberation and i'm going to offer up uh, some sage as we
0: begin light a little sage clearing the space it's an embodied practice that infuses dance movements of the african diaspora with a meditative yoga sequence and live healing music in an inclusive and diverse circle of non-judgment. The mission? Make healing and transformation accessible around the world. I'm
1: Leslie Salmon Jones, and this is a lesson on inner wisdom.
0: Can you tell me what your earliest memory of being creative is? I love this
1: question because it was the most challenging question. (laughs) And when I think about being creative, there's... Being creative. I remember lying in my crib and seeing shapes and, mm-hmm. and things floating around in my head, and, and spark my imagination. And I think that's beauty and creativity. And then I could think of memories where I was—I was creative in not my most shining moments, but trying to get my mother's attention, for example. <laughs> I think I pulled off her afro wig in a in a traffic jam. <laughs> that was pretty creative. <laughs> love that Uh, yeah and if I think about the creative process I would think about a speech I wrote when I was in grade four and it was about my mom and I just remember taking the idea and formulating the love in my heart and the inspiration I had for her and then putting it on paper Mm -hmm. and then putting out in the world and so that was the creative process. So those are, are my memories. Yeah,
0: I love your background in movement because it's one that I am so challenged by. My body has always been a source of issue for me. Can you tell me about your work in dance? Because that's going to set the foundation for where we go. But tell me about how you came to dance.
1: So, when I was seven years old, I started taking ballet from my aunt Marjorie Sorrell, who had a ballet studio. And I just remember I started awakening the mastering my my body, but also my spirit. There was something, I don't know if I could articulate that back then, but it's when I come to ballet. Or dance, there's something spiritual about it for me where I feel rooted and grounded in something beyond my physical body. And I also simultaneously, my mom and dad would take us to Black Heritage in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And we would learn about our Afro Caribbean heritage and i was introduced to afro caribbean dance and african dance back then so it was interesting as i have the european and the african heritage and ballet is very controlled it's a very controlled art form mm-hmm. whereas african dance dances of the african diaspora are so freeing yet there's some something about discipline and freedom so finding within the structure finding the freedom within that. Mm
0: -hmm. I love the contrast. And then you went to Alvin Alien studied.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So I did quit dance when I was about 14 Mm. Uh, and I was just actually, I I have a very muscular body and so it was all self-esteem induced and I actually didn't like my body because I didn't see any positive images of black dancers or, or, really very few black images of positive images in the mainstream.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly not in ballet either. But certainly that's not that's in it.
1: ballet, even in magazines. And it was like a lot of negative images. And it wasn't until I was 13, I saw Alvin Ely. My mom took me to see Alvin Ely and I was like, wow, look at these fierce, powerful, graceful, spiritual human beings Floating in the air, mm. such power. And I went to Lynn Gibson in Toronto, and he was a former Alvin Ailey dancer, and he taught the dances, like the deep roots of the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I had to find, I had a, a spiritual crisis, and I lost the connection to myself. I, it was like being in the dark. Mm. And I had to rebuild myself, and I remembered. I had to think about in my heart what pulls my heart, what, what is my passion. And I remembered dance. I remembered singing Alvin Ailey. So I trained myself for about six months to remember mm. the discipline. And I decided I was going to go to Alvin Ailey, go to the summer intensive program. I was in 91, Mm. And I have never turned back. (laughs) I'm still in the U.S.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just curious about the difference in your experience between being in Canada versus the United States. Mm. And do you feel that contributed in in any way to a quickening of the work that you had to do in the world? When I first moved to New York,
1: one of the things that struck me the most was the segregation. And even though New York is such a integrated city, when I was living in Brooklyn, it was like you could cut the segregation like a knife. It was very clear. This is a black neighborhood. Mm. This is the white neighborhood. And growing up in Toronto, and of course, as you know, my mom, who mm-hmm. has been into anti-racism and just an incredible leader in human rights, and growing up in a multicultural family, even though there's racism and the isms exist in Canada, I think the difference is that Canada is more like a cultural mosaic. So it's like a, it's like a beautiful bouquet. Mm-hmm. And so there's an unfolding and an openness, even though there are challenges at the root. And the U.S. is the melting pot, the assimilation. Mm -hmm. And so there's a contraction there. Mm -hmm. And that was so clear to me that I realized there's so much work to do. Mm -hmm. And so that has been part of my mission and to celebrate the beauty and richness and brilliance, genius of people from all walks of life.
0: And speaking to positive images is that you became one, because I remember your Reebok campaign, and you were the beautiful body, and how beautiful that you were able to transform that self-esteem into becoming visible. And we talk about visibility in this podcast. I'm curious, becoming visible in that way. And I remember the hype over that ad, not just among family and people who knew you, but among everybody really loving that ad. It was almost like overnight fame in a way. How did you receive that? And how did you process that at that time?
1: It's interesting that you say that, Kim, because that Reebok ad that you sing, I think it was the one with my back. I yes. had my back and I was standing strong. And the day that I shot that, actually that time that I shot that, I had done so much healing from a very broken place. So the love that you were seeing and feeling was actually the love for myself that I, it was a newfound love for myself. Mm. And it wasn't about, the external. It was the internal. I healed a lot of those negative thoughts. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not enough, enough, enough. I was doing a program by Queen Afua. I love Queen Afua. If you you don't know about Queen Afua, look her up. She's amazing. Yeah. She's still around doing great work, but she has a book called Heal Thyself.
0: I remember that title. I do remember that title. It's so
1: powerful. So I had uh, just about two months prior to that ad, I was in LA doing a musical. And then I went back to New York because I was invited to shoot the cover of Black Elegance Magazine in a five-page spread. And I remember showing up that morning to the shoot saying, I'm not good enough, I'm not I'm fat, I like all of these stories messages to the editor. That's what I was saying to the editor. Mm. She looked at me and she said, You need to heal yourself mm-hmm. and read this book, Queen of Fua, by Queen of Fua. So I did all this deep, deep work and cleansed and I fasted, I prayed, I meditated. I looked at the internal world as opposed to the external. Mm-hmm. That wasn't important. It was the work that inner, it's like being the inner architect.
0: And that's how we're truly visible, is coming from our magic realm of the unseen is what I believe. That's where visibility really begins.
1: I was rooted and grounded in that work. I mean, to this day, I don't really even see it as fame, but what I see it as a manifestation Of that light within all of us Mm -hmm. and the access that we all have. And so, why people were potentially attracted to that is because they were actually also seeing their own light Mm -hmm. and the potential of all of our light.
0: You met your lovely husband, Jeff, on a plane. I remember it's very dramatic. Story very fun story. You moved to Boston, and you took a trip to West Africa, specifically Ghana, Togo, Benin, and the Ivory Coast, to learn about and connect with your ancestors. And is that where the idea for Afroflow began? By the way, I met Jeff
1: the day that I shot that ad. <gasps> oh
0: I my god! It gets I, better.
1: I was flying to Boston to shoot that ad.
0: Oh, my God. I love that. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes it even better, that story. Oh, okay.
1: In terms of the work, I feel like that journey to West Africa was part of a continuum of the healing journey of the identity, of finding my light, my truth. So layers later and years later, after we got married, one of the things I had prayed for in a, a mate was someone who had strong ancestry. Mm-hmm. And so I, I often say someone who is rich in ancestry, mm-hmm. because those roots, there's a proverb in Africa that says a tree without roots will fall. After three of our parents passed away, we really wanted to discover more of our ancestry. And that journey to West Africa was really what the catalyst to going a little deeper into the layers of ancestral trauma particularly mm-hmm. the female lineage mm-hmm. and then two years after that trip continuing two years of doing deep deep work healing my womb mm. healing that trauma and out of that birthed afro flow yoga through a vision and a meditation the afro flow yoga is a combination of dances of the african diaspora the practice of yoga and live music and if you can't see me or if you can, the, all these instruments behind me. My husband, Jeff, plays 11 different instruments. Some will argue 13. <laughs> <laughs> Afrofluo has become a movement and it's a way of creating healing circles, connecting to our roots. At the Senkofa philosophy is about reaching back and getting. And that whole mm. thing about getting that deep, deep wisdom, that's within all of our cells. Even mm. if we don't know our ancestors, Right. that yep. wisdom is in our cells and our DNA. Yep.
0: Epigenetics.
1: And as well as I think about the universe and the universe is always in motion. So it's always dancing, right. flowing. And this, each planet has its own sound, its own vibration. Mm-hmm. So there's music and movement within the universe. So when we come together in circle, as we do Afro-Flow Yoga, we do healing circles, we're doing them all over the world. It's an opportunity for people to come out of their heads, drop into the embodied space to access that deep wisdom and then allow the healing to come through. And
0: then reach the
1: earth. Now in this moment, as we connect to the earth, from our ancestors, so give
0: thanks. There was a, an article I read about, and they reference Afroflow yoga because there is an invisibility of Black people in yoga in leadership positions and teaching. And I know I was avid in my Hatha yoga practice when I moved to the United States, I read all the books, I'd been doing my practice all the time. When I got there and got into the studios, I was like, this is, feels really weird. And it feels very, oh, we've got the nice pants. Like it's not the focus on the spiritual that I had understood yoga to be. And I actually fell out of practice and community in that, which was so odd because I was so regular. I had this teacher, I actually wanted to bring this up today. I remembered in preparing for this interview who said, I couldn't do because I used to struggle with the locust mm-hmm. and the bow were two positions I just don't love, right? Mm-hmm. I have a lot of hip tension. But she said, Well, she just is like black bodies aren't aren't shaped for that position because your booty is more pronounced. And and I, well, I kind of took it and I thought, huh, well, I suppose that could be it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I had a lot of people to ask, mm-hmm. you know, is this in fact true? But of course. I'm looking at your face. That is not true. So thankfully, I'm getting that message. I still suck at those two positions, I will say. Yeah. But where did she learn that? She, and she is a, a, a lovely human, right? So where on earth did she learn that? Yeah.
1: And this is why the work embodiment practice is so important because there are so many messages and conditionings that are stuck in their their stories that aren't true. I remember swimming, taking swimming lessons, and we had a teacher come over to the house and the teacher looked at me and she said to my mom, she's a sinker. (gasps) I can't teach her. She's a sinker.
0: Yeah. Where did she learn that? I consider you probably the most athletic in your family. No. I I love swimming. I'm a (laughs) good. It's like
1: like, like, my mother fired her on the spot. And (laughs) do you believe that? Because I'm a fish. I love swimming.
0: Yeah. But
1: these are things that are, it's from the white supremacist lens. And it's from colonizer. It's from all of that old stuff, that dehumanization process of taking these strong people and how do we actually enslave them? How do we get them to become docile? And those are the messages and the stories that have unfortunately been passed on through generation, through our educational systems, through families, through stories that aren't true. And so it requires an investigation.
0: What they've done is they've gotten into people's heads. That's right. And I saw a quote from Toni Morrison that said, racism is a distraction. They use the racism as a means to keep you from your great work, to keep you from following your calling. And I think she's exemplary of somebody who did not allow that to happen, but it is tough. Yeah. And I, too, noticed a distinct difference between the US and Canada. I was like, why are all of the people who are the help brown? Right. That's odd. Yeah. I'd never noticed that before because, of course, it, it doesn't look like that here. I read a quote from you saying that our people weren't enslaved because they were weak. They were enslaved because they were strong and that is something that black people needed to be reminded of and afroflow yoga does that and i think you also say which is the a beautiful quote we've inherited a spiritual muscle that cannot be colonized that's right and that is so powerful because especially in this moment we've noticed that many of the transformative movements happening to uproot the system that is very broken, have been started by Black women.
1: That's right. The midwives to the new paradigm.
0: I, I, last episode, <laughs> I referred to us as the midwives. So, yes, I, this is the exact same. Because also, what's so interesting to me is you talk about being inspired by your mom, but by the care. And I do believe that that legacy of care, one that is understood deeply by Black women.
1: That's right.
0: And by women as a larger force in the world. So that this moment, I think leadership really is about care and how we care and how we systemize potentially care in this moment.
1: It's a time of the rise of the divine feminine and I've had the honor to sit by the feet of many indigenous elders. Are you familiar with the 13 grandmothers? No. So the 13 grandmothers, there was indigenous women who came from different bloods, different lineages, and they all had the same vision and they found each other. Mm-hmm. And they were led to share the message to the globe and the message is really that the earth is dying
0: mm-hmm.
1: and in indigenous wisdom, the divine masculine represents the fire and we need the fire. Yes. And the fire ignites movement. However, when we have too much of it as the patriarchy, hmm we can burn down the whole forest, and that's what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. It's raging. Right now, our waters are dying. Yes. There's 1% of the water in the world that's drinkable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Clean water is an issue. And as we see with the pandemic, I, I'm not a scientist, but I think COVID obviously is a, a reaction to our ecosystem being out of balance. hmm And in Indigenous wisdom, the women, that not just women. I'm not talking about gender. Right. I'm talking about the energy. We carry the divine and masculine and feminine within Mm -hmm. the water. Water is nourishing. And we are 80% water or or more. And as the waters are dying, we're being called to bring this feminine wisdom in. Mm -hmm. And... Too much water can create floods. Right. Well, so we're (laughs) right. So we're working with the elements, and we've come so far disconnected through colonization Mm -hmm. from that process of being in sacred relationship and harmony with nature that we're finding ourselves lost and bringing ourselves hopefully back to center and through the divine feminine, I believe that is how we come back into harmony and balance.
0: I actually was talking about us being a tsunami women right now and that mother nature is not playing. And if she is done with us, she will just put us into oblivion. Quite frankly, as women, we have to lead like that in a way right now. It is still feminine, but it is I mean business. Right. You are also the co-creator and a faculty member for the annual Omega Women's Leadership Intensive at the Omega Women's Leadership Center. And I wanted to talk about feminine leadership. Do you believe there is such a thing as feminine leadership and if yes, how would you define it?
1: I have been honored to be in circle with some amazing women since I think we started back in 2012, and the question was, how do we do power differently? Mm hmm. And because we do power differently. That's right. In the patriarchal system and colonized system, colonial system, there's having power over. And in the divine feminine system, there's doing power with collectively. So okay. thinking about the circle. Mm-hmm. It's been such an honor to, to have that as a workshop and to be in circle with so many women leaders from around the world. And coming in, we've been looking at uh, our curriculum, it started with four Vs, our values, our voice, our vision, and our voyage.
0: For your eyes, oh, I love that. That's <laughs> a good one.
1: The last few years, I was feeling deeply that we needed to add another V, and that's our vessel, mm. because we've been cut from the vessel through patriarchy and colonization.
0: And I would add another V, actually, visibility. And visibility. Yeah. Visibility is is something I've been really looking at and studying, but I do believe it's exactly what you expressed, that when you come into self-love, you are a light for others as you just reveal the fullness of your nature. That's right. Is That is a feminine perspective then in your... I mean, I I do believe too that we have the divine masculine and feminine inside of us. How do you think women can do things differently.
1: Definitely with the women's lib movement, historically, women had been approaching leadership through the masculine, Mm -hmm. through patriarchy, rising to the top, becoming the CEO of a large corporation you have power over other people and having to prove that they could be as strong as men and lead in a way that the culture dictates. And now what we're seeing is it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to bring in our emotions. It's okay to nurture as that divine feminine, as the qualities have been often suppressed. Mm-hmm. So now it's an invitation to actually claim those qualities, to, to empower those qualities, to ignite those qualities, because that is what is needed, I believe, to midwife this new paradigm. Mm-hmm. Without those qualities, our baby isn't going to be born. We're going through the, I feel like we're going through the birth canal and we're also mourning. So we're birthing and losing the old, shedding the old.
0: We're actually in the dark on instinct in this moment, if you, if we're in the canal, we're in the dark on instinct and what you just, it's truly leaving the comfort of the womb, but we've outgrown that space. That's right. What would you say to a woman who was afraid to use her voice, afraid to lead in this moment? What would you say to her? So a couple of things on fear.
1: One of the things I set out to do when I was was in my early 20s I wanted to face my fear. I think of Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz. Mm. And getting to that place, that door, and where it can be so terrifying to go through the door the beautiful film we needed a little brain we needed our heart we needed our friends we needed all of the our faculty <laughs> all everything and then we get to the door and we hear the big voice of oz and and then what was it toto who pulled the curtain and then <laughs> and, a and, was like, okay. and that barrier <laughs> between that little curtain is a barrier to coming home to yourself mm. Mm-hmm. And so, false evidence appearing real. As mm-hmm. and so, to take a leap of faith, I actually co-led a, a women's leadership right before COVID on a trapeze.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: Yes. So, yeah, so I, I. I mean, we weren't leading on the trapeze, but part of the workshop mm-hmm. was to build up this moment where we would be led to jump off of a trapeze. But that was like such a huge metaphor for Mm -hmm. facing fear. I'm afraid of heights and I did it and I loved it. And and there was so much safety around it. Taking that leap of faith can be one of the most powerful things, blocking you from your liberation, from your voice, from your truth. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, do things that scare you, like take a leap and you'll be amazed what you find. And maybe it's not jumping off of a trapeze, but maybe it's doing something, little steps, little baby steps. Mm -hmm. And your voice is so essential. So I encourage whoever's listening to this, who has that fear to take that leap.
0: Why do you say that? And I, I believe this as well, but why do you think women's voices are so essential right now?
1: Well, we've been oppressed, number one, for centuries, and there's so much wisdom to be heard, so much beauty to come out into the world, so much genius to be birthed, Mm -hmm. and we need to hear our voices. We have been so oppressed, and this is why I believe we're in this situation now, and perhaps this is part of the evolution And the revolution is to come into our voices, into our power. Mm -hmm. That is why we must be inspired by the spiritual muscle of our ancestors because there is so much to navigate through, so much dense conditioning. Mm -hmm. And so that spiritual muscle will... Help us rise above, and again, it can't be colonized. This isn't only people of color, because through colonialism and patriarchy, everybody ultimately is entrapped in those systems.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether what side you're on of the lie, mm-hmm. or whatever side, we're still entrapped in those limitations. hmm so to be able to find ways out of that, to le- take a leap of consciousness out of that paradigm and system into something that is so beautiful. And when I say beautiful, I'm not talking externally. Right. I'm talking about that radiant light, of mm-hmm. whether you call it God or the creator or the universe. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty I speak of. And I also got that word from my dad. He used to always say, oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> so my husband was like, you say that word a lot. And I think I'm just channeling Dr. Sam. And I'm just-
0: <laughs> <laughs> The beauty is the highest form of God. Beauty is the highest frequency. The issue is not the beauty. The issue is the interpretation of what is beautiful. That's right. The issue is that there have been a handful of gatekeepers who have told us what is in fact beautiful. When you look at the diversity of nature and the, there are so many cultures that talk about, Japanese culture, I think of the pottery and the scars. There's so many different things that are quote unquote beautiful. But we have allowed a handful of people to tell us what is, in fact, beautiful. Exactly. And that's where for women to get locked in, the weight, why don't I have this color hair or eyes or whatever, it has nothing to do with your beauty. That's right. Now you're in my head. (laughs) Would you complete the sentence? My wish for every other woman is? Liberation. Love it. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com.